Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. I am in beautiful Kalispell, Montana on this wonderful June Saturday. Um, I should be fishing, but I'm at the POMA Conference, Professional Outdoor Media Association. And this is a great place to hang out and catch up with great podcast uh, guests. And today I've got two of them with me. Both of them have been on the podcast before, but because those podcasts were some of our most popular ones, when I saw them, I said, Shane, Keith, I brought my podcast kit and I'm going to kind of corner you guys here. So sitting here with me right now, Shane Mahoney and Keith Belford from Boone and Crockett Club. And if you go back into our, our past episodes, you'll, you'll hear podcasts where both of them were on at different times. Um, and I think we're going to solve all the world's problems here. I mean, we're talking everything from Mideast peace to world hunger to you name it, because we got visiting last night. And if we can even touch on a third of the, a tenth of the issues we talked about last night, the world will be a better place. No doubt about it. So I really appreciate you guys, Shane, Keith. Thanks for, uh, for taking the time to talk to our audience today. Well, great to be here. Absolutely. So uh, before we get into solving the world's problems, I just want to thank the folks at uh, Onyx Maps for uh, making this podcast possible. Uh, you guys all know how I use the Onyx Map system. They have a promo code for all of our listeners right now, Randy16. Uh, go out to onyxmaps.com, their new hunt app. Uh, you use that promo code, and you're going to get a large discount. Orion Coolers, uh, you guys have seen me using them, heard me talking about them. Uh, great company, the best cooler I've been able to find, and that's the cooler uh, I use because it's the best one I've been able to find. Go to orioncoolers.com. And then the Go Hunt Insider. Uh, be your own hunting consultant is their tagline and i've i've pretty much adopted that and they have a special promo code also if you use hunt talk h-u-n-t-t-a-l-k for their insider service go to gohunt.com and hit the insider button use the hunt talk promo code and you're going to get a free scalpel blade knife from gerber their the brand of knife they call it is the vital knife so again thanks to all those folks for uh for making this podcast possible um I'm, I'm just going to jump right in this because last night when we were talking, I think we must have had the crystal ball out on the table. And uh, Shane said something last night that just about caused me to fall out of my chair. I had no idea that this was even ongoing. And you were explaining that some people who are worried about uh, animal welfare have, are bringing to market, actually, a new type of protein. Can give me the background. It's it just struck me as wow. If you're a hunter based on the concept of hunting for food, you better know about this. Well, um, you know it's a it's a very new and recent development. But there is a company that is now producing meat, uh, animal muscle tissue meat, uh, and they are essentially culturing this. Um, in a petri dish style, although obviously it's at a much larger scale than this, uh, that will be brought to market. And the work that I've read upon it is that the uh, this product will be brought to market in the next 12 months in the United States of America. I can't really say that the motivation for those uh, investors and producers is about animal welfare uh, or issues surrounding that. But clearly, there is uh, going to be a messaging uh, associated with this product right. okay. that's going to say, uh, you know, no, no animal really has to die, and you can still be a meat eater. And, of course, it's, uh, 
As a business opportunity, it must be intriguing because worldwide the consumption of meat is increasing as a global phenomenon. And generally speaking, as countries uh, become wealthier, the, the consumption of meat increases. So we're not in any danger of people not eating meat going forward. <laughs> um, and uh, this is probably an issue of contention and concern for those who are interested in seeing the end of activities such as our hunting activity. And clearly now there can be a product because of stem cell research and the various advances genetically that we have made uh, to be able to actually create this product uh, in pretty much a totally artificial environment. And the really interesting thing about this, as one conjectures about the implications of it, is, okay, we firmly believe that one of our primary motivations for hunting, of course, is to attain organic, you know, free-ranging meat that's sort of been untouched. <clears throat> well, uh, this meat won't be the same as that, but nevertheless, it will be able to claim that no animal died, and possibly, I'm not intimately familiar with the production sequence, but quite possibly uh, that uh, it was not treated with antibiotics or hormones or things of this nature. But the phenomenon is real. It's coming to your world, just like electric cars and driverless cars are and so on and so forth. Wow. That, Keith, you and I are pretty engaged in the hunting world. I, I mean, when I heard that, all of a sudden I'm like, holy cow. That, that just changes so many of the discussions I have with people about one of my motives for hunting being food. And often it's with someone who, who doesn't understand hunting. And food is always a, a motivation that seems to get them to understand it. Now I can see the next response. Well, you could go buy that stuff grown in the Petri dish down at Costco. Well, th this is so new that, that I'm not even sure I've, I've, it's fully sunk in. Um, but you did talk about primary motivations for hunting, and that's always been mine and my family's and my father's that instilled that in me. Um, but the, the sharing of the food that... Uh, I was able to harvest, whether it's with my family or with my friends. Um, that's a very strong, strong component, I think, with most hunters. And um, whether this Petri dish bacon has traction or not, um, that's something I don't think will ever be replaced is, hey, I'm coming to your house for dinner and I'm, <laughs> I'm bringing you this ham that was grown in the lab and this is how I'm sharing with you. Um, no, that, that, that elk that I packed off the mountain uh, and, and make several trips to do so and, 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 and cut that processed up myself and, and brought that to you uh, as a friend or as a family member, <clears throat> that, that's irreplaceable to me. And I think, like I said, to a lot of hunters, that's, um, you know, I don't know what else in life I can even uh, draw a parallel to that with. Um, you know, you go to right. somebody's, well, we went to some of our friends for dinner last night, like you said, and it's customary that you bring something. Well, we stopped at the store and bought a couple bottles of wine. Um, yeah, it's, so the, and the, the point why I wanted to bring this up as one of the crystal ball items is, and I think what you said, Keith, is the perfect segue to, to the point I'm trying to make is that hunting is so much more about just one issue. And a lot of times we, we have a tendency, I think 
because we're the smaller segment of society, we maybe circle the wagons or we, we almost instantly feel like we got to be in a defensive position. And the danger of doing that is sooner or later, someone comes up with ways to counter your defensive arguments. But when you start getting into these uh, uh, soft tissue arguments, if you want to call it that, like the culture of sharing, the idea of this is, whether you anthropologically or wherever, however far you want to look at it, there's all these other aspects to hunting. There, it's just ingrained in who we are. It's, but uh, so many people right now are going through this trend where, and, and I'm as guilty as anyone because I did come to hunting through food. It's just part of my family. I think we're always trying to grab to, okay, this is going to be the answer that, that makes hunting, uh, relevant, I think is the term you used last night, Shane, uh, not legitimate, but relevant. And, and so bringing it, starting with that point of this, what do you call it? Petri, Petri dish bacon. (laughs) Um, but to me, starting with that point is a, is a way to lead this discussion about how important hunting is to us and how many different facets Mm -hmm. it connects us to so many different things in our lives. And, and I'm guilty of not even appreciating all those different nuances, connections, places where it's impacted my life until I hear something like Shane brought up last night. Just all of a sudden, everything that I had in my mind of some organized thought to very complicated problems is now a little bit tweaked. Well, you know, I think the point you're really getting at, and I think it's a really important one for the hunting community to understand, is uh, we don't not live in a static society. Right. Um, and yet a lot of our rhetoric and a lot of our emotional uh, attachments and our emotional expressions around the activity sort of almost suggest that we do. You know, it will always be this way. I hunted with my father. I hunted with my uncles. I grew up as a boy doing such and such. Well, the truth of the matter is that the modern world, in many respects, bears reduced or, in some cases, very little resemblance anymore to that experience. We have uh, different generations of young people who have different expectations. Uh, They have different activities that they often can engage in. Um, we have a lot of different pressures coming to bear, um, and I think this this rather you know fantastical idea of thinking of meat being grown in some sort of culture and then marketed uh, to people for their evening dinner is just another example of how we can never expect hunting to be existing in a static society. And I think the important point there is that if we are to protect it and maintain it then we ought to understand that we are going to have to be constantly vigilant about demonstrating that it is relevant. I think it's true that should this meat, this this cultured meat idea take off, it will not be of any attraction to uh, the hunting family uh, or the hunter, of course. As a matter of fact, it will be far less attractive than any kind of food, I would think. But the issue is, will it be attractive to the broader society that is developing increasingly empathetic positions with respect to wild animals and animals generally, that is becoming less and less comfortable with the idea of animal death 
and with all things associated with that, in some cases agriculture, in some cases hunting, will they increasingly turn to this? And will they then use the argument, you see, an animal does not have to die for you to have all the amino acid, protein, vitamin benefits of meat. As a matter of fact, through that process, perhaps they can create a meat that is just as high in vitamin and mineral and low in fat as game meat. So you could see where it could be used right. should it take off. Right? Yeah, and, and so the, I think about all that stuff, and, and right now I'm, I'm kind of pushing myself through this process of evaluating because I have this podcast, I have the big Hunt Talk website, and then I have a TV show and a YouTube channel, evaluating when do my actions do, or do my actions correlate to what my motivations are. And that really comes down to messaging. And Keith, we talked about this in our podcast where there are many uh, aspects of hunting that society as a rule is comfortable with. That it gains favor depending on how the motive is expressed. But so often in the world that we see, and you guys produced a TV show that was a great TV show, um, and it was one I was always attracted to because I thought that the motives and the expression of those motives were always consistent. But as a general group uh, in the hunting world, whether it's print, TV, I don't care, whatever, um, oftentimes. I worry that we're expressing a motivation, some of those that you just mentioned, Shane, but our actions don't necessarily, the message that we see from people doesn't necessarily coincide. So it's, it's starting at that point kind of gets me then to this next topic of in a non-static, uh, you know, in this the, the fluid world we live in, today are, are the motives being matched by the message well that that's an excellent question randy um and you're right we we were involved uh, in television series for eight years uh and in in being in involved in that you by default watch what's going on you watch what other shows are doing what the networks are doing and so on and so forth and and I, I hear from a lot of people a lot of our members a lot of our associates uh, supporters of the of the club uh, that are not satisfied with the message, not satisfied with how hunting is being portrayed, uh, not only in television, but um, you know, individual Facebook pages, individual videos, uh, things that people are doing. And um, there's self-inflicted wounds going on out there. There's, there's no question about it. And, and it raises a, an interesting conundrum because historically uh, hunters and rightfully so, want to band together. We're a small portion of society, as everyone knows. And that has that, you know, circle the wagon kind of default mechanism. Um, and so anytime uh, anyone's critical of a form of hunting, you hear it from the other side. You know, hunters should all be banding together. We should all be on the same page. And, and I, I believe that to a point. However, I think we also have an obligation um, in this non-static society that Shane's talking about to uh, call out the bad actors and, and say, no, this is not representative of my motives for hunting. This is not representative of hunting in general. Uh, these are aspects uh, of hunting that are um, 
you know, part of this conditional support. You mentioned, you know, the majority of people support hunting, but that, as we know from studies, and it's not rocket science, that that support is conditional. Uh, hunting for food is, is ranks very high favorably among non-hunting public. Um, the things that rank low, uh, unfortunately, uh, wherever you sit, um, you know, hunting for a trophy, um, and that's, you know, being misrepresented and misconstrued but but what you see on television this glorification of antler this glorification of trophy uh is is certainly a runaway freight train that's that's sending a wrong message and you know folks that are um you know emotionally celebrating a successful hunt that's important Uh, there's no reason to subdue that but how we do it is vitally important so um these are tough things we're dealing with, no, no doubt. And, and, you know, the world is watching more now than ever before. Shane alluded to this, this growing empathy for wildlife. Um, you know, that is forcing um, a lot of people to engage in something that, you know, basically hummed along for generations. People just didn't, right. you know, stick their nose in it. And, and now uh, we're forced um, to think about these things and on one hand that's a good thing um, we should be paying attention to how hunting is being portrayed certainly how it's being misrepresented but are are we culpable for some of those misconceptions ourselves yeah and, and it's hard to you know, when you feel like you're part of that smaller community it's really hard it's a dangerous place I guess to have some of these discussions of what is the message we want to give? Because the, when we you say this is the affirmative message, it almost inherently discounts or, or, or denounces a, a different message, and then you end up in these internal conflicts. But you used a term there, Keith, that uh, trophy hunting and how it's got this stigma. And online I watched this debate that went on Oh, I think it was a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, and Shane, we talked about it a little last night. Uh, and it was with some two folks from the hunting community and two folks from the anti-hunting community. And when I heard that it was happening, I'm like, oh, no, this looks like a train wreck. We're walking into an ambush. And unfortunately, I think it turned out that way. But one of the things that I noticed is that when the one anti-hunting spokesperson, he never said hunting. He always said trophy hunting like it was this he knows it's an effective stigma an effective label to hang on anybody that okay i've just discounted your argument because i put another label on you and uh that that debate kind of got talking about that debate last night got us on a whole series of of other uh topics shane and you had a bunch of i thought very valuable observations about where we're at in hunting where we're going with our message, uh, not just how we see ourselves, but how the rest of society sees us. And you made a distinction between relevant and I'm trying to remember what the other legitimacy. legitimacy. <laughs> yeah. And so I, if you are comfortable, I'd like to have you just kind of spin some of the things you talked about last night uh, regarding sure. relevance and legitimacy. Well, first of all, to come to this idea, <coughs> because it's related to this question of perception, um, the public has two fundamental lines of perception on hunting. 
One has to do with the behavior of the hunter and, and his or her motivations. <clears throat> and the second lies with the animal itself. So they have uh, interest in, fascination with, and in many cases a rising empathy for animals of all kinds. And at the same time, they're wondering about the motivation of the hunter, um, and the two collide at the point of the animal's death. Because up to that point, the public may not be so concerned that a hunter is walking through the woods or on an alpine meadow, uh, that he or she is carrying a firearm, or that sh even he or she has the intent, if they see an animal that they are legally uh, allowed to harvest, that they in fact do so. It's at the point of the animal's death that all of these things coalesce. And um, so we have to understand that it is at that point of animal death that all of a sudden the conjecturing goes on. Why should an animal die? Why did that person shoot the lion? Why did that person shoot the elk? And so what we have emerging now in society is a a very focused debate on that issue of motivation and that issue of animal death uh, in and of itself. And almost all <coughs> of our rhetoric around hunting, or certainly a, a very large portion of it, has shifted, of course, uh, the focus onto the very thing that society is most concerned about. Our original writings on hunting, and this is obvious to anybody who makes a study of this, as I have, our original uh, focus in our hunting writings were on the chase, the experience, and the second point of emphasis was always on the wild other itself, the animal itself, its incredible beauty, its extraordinary capacities, its its ability to elude us, to thwart our efforts, to outmatch our wits, to do everything. And our determination to struggle on as poor uh, humans <laughs> trying to win this game in a sense. What we have done in the last 30 years, and it has been, it has been intensified uh, exponentially by the rise of television, is we have switched that around completely and we focused entirely upon the hunter and entirely upon the kill. There are exceptions, but right. overall this is what the genre has done. Right. So here what you see happening is a perfect match between our communications over hunting with the vital areas, the arteries of concern that the public is expressing, and we are feeding absolutely the wrong information, heightening essentially those two points of emphasis, the hunter and his motivation or her motivation and the death of the animal. And that's what we're feeding them constantly. So there's a perfect mismatch. We couldn't have designed it with any greater imbecility than we have. And the industry is very reluctant to give this over and are not prepared uh, to sit down and seriously consider the fact that they are actually harming the hand that feeds them if they want to see it from a, a personal investment point of view, but more importantly, harming this legitimate tradition which has played such an important role in conservation. 
I deal a lot in the international arena now. Every day as I open my computer because of the roles I play in the IUCN and the CIC and other groups internationally, every day when my computer opens up, there's a flood of information from around the world that not that many people in North America see. Some yeah. do, but it's a smaller percentage right. of people who see it. Um, and what we are witnessing worldwide is unprecedented. And it's very easy to provide metrics or measures of this. You know, on such things as the ivory trade and the illegal killing of, of rhinos and elephants, you know, you have the UN General Assembly, the United Nations Security Council, the British royal family, you know, the, uh, the, the, the president of the United States, and a former president of the United States and his foundation, all speaking out, you know, attending meetings, saying things about this problem. I mean, when was the last time anybody saw that level of engagement by those kinds of entities in a wildlife issue? And what's happening is that illegal activity, the poaching of elephants, the poaching of rhinos, which, you know, is horrific what they do with rhinos. Yeah. Um, and elephants, too, of course. That, you know, that issue is suddenly now being conflated with all hunting. Right. They, they more and more people are seeing it, making no distinction between legal hunting and illegal hunting. And this problem is out there in the media every day, and it is feeding the minds of the big majority of society, the large percentage of citizens, who are simply trying to make up their minds. Look, the basic human animal out in our city, on our street, in our grocery store, is a human being uh, who has a level of love, compassion, and concern for animals of all kind. That is that unmistakable. That, yeah, that, that's just the human condition. So they're trying to make up their mind. You know, animal death, it can't be frivolous. It can't be for some petty purpose. It's a significant event. And they are starting to conflate the ideas of illegal hunting with legitimate hunting, and they are beginning to take the word trophy and broaden it out to basically encompass so much of hunting. Uh, and then for people to believe that almost everybody is, a, in quotation marks, trophy hunting. And, you know, the, thi the lesson the hunting community is going to have to learn quickly, and I mean in the next two to five years, learn and act upon, is the fact that it does not matter if your message is correct. It matters if your message convinces people right society is not stupid no we, we i think we we expect that oh we can pull it over on them or no one will know or we so now i feel like a a fool here folks i got to admit that when i set up the podcast kit today i ended up uh putting the wrong sd card in there and while we were going through this podcast at about the half minute, half hour mark, I looked down and it said, SD card full, change SD card. So <laughs> I feel like a, a, such a fool. Um, so we missed a little bit of the conversation and I'm going to try get it wrapped back into what we were doing. But uh, Keith joked and said, well, that's what happens, Randy, when you have a, a big brain guy like Shane on here, he uses big words and and uh, maybe your SD card just fills a little bit quicker when that happens. So anyhow, we're going to jump back into this. My apologies that, that we lost a little bit, but uh, here we go. So Keith, to, to that point that, that you were on, um, it, it makes me think of a way that whenever Shane and I visit, he often 
uh, uses terms that make me realize that my reality might be a small reality because just geographically just because of the people I touch not being the entire segment of society in the country, in the continent, in the world. And so, Jane, you, you used the term earlier in the discussion about, uh, you know, whether we like it or not, the reality is. And, and I worry at times if we in the hunting world, um, because Keith had said, you know, we've never been under the scrutiny we're under now. Um, have we maybe not, has the lack of scrutiny allowed us to not have to look at the reality of this bigger world and i think you see it before we do shane because you're in all these other countries you're in, you're in africa you're in europe you're all over and so um it just got me thinking about what is that reality and 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 what are the dangers what are the ways we have to address that reality and no longer just think our reality is the reality well, the, <coughs> the international reality is that, um, first of all, um, huge numbers of people around the world still, re still uh, rely upon hunting of one form or another to actually feed themselves. Let's start at a, a very positive and a very basic reality. Uh, we may think that's just what's something that happens in Montana or something that just happens in Newfoundland, but in fact, there are billions of people who rely every day on food that is acquired from nature that's taken through a process of hunting. In some cases, it's hunting that's more akin to ours and that animals are pursued with weapons or spears. But we have to remember that all world fisheries are hunts. We pursue uh, sentient creatures that try to evade us. We capture them, we kill them, we butcher them, and we eat them. <coughs> Why the hunting community hasn't been more forceful in pointing out this fact to the rest of the world, I'm not sure, but I try to do it every occasion I, I, I can, because I really think blurring the line sometimes is what we need to do in favor of our tradition, not trying to clarify them. Um, so given that fact, I think that's, that's a reality that is global, that is uh, similar in a sense to the reality that I might have in Newfoundland or you might have here in Montana. We eat a lot of wild things. And a lot of people around the world continue to eat a lot of wild things. And if we tried to end the eating of wild things tomorrow, we would have a catastrophe of famine and strife in this planet that's unimaginable. So that's a reality. A second major reality that's happening globally is there is a rising empathy for wildlife, for animals. Now, some people say it's not really empathy. It's just some kind of frivolous, you know, uh, veneer and people really don't understand the issues, I think that's missing the point. There's enough of an empathy in their position that they are willing to vote through social media postings or supporting political elites or do whatever to try to change the way we deal with animals in the world. Now that has affected agriculture, you know, animal welfare issues. Yeah. We're all well aware of that. And now it is coming to affect the issue of why should animals die at all if it's not necessary? And that's what gets them focusing on the issue of hunting. And it's there that the reality becomes refracted into, okay, what is the motivation of the hunter? Why should Cecil have died? Huh? That's yeah. the question they're, at, right. they're asking. Um, and it gets very much at the heart of the controversies over hunting. And they say, well, if there's a legitimate reason, maybe I can go along with this. And then it becomes a matter of how they define legitimate. 
right? <laughs> so legitimate might be that they accept meat hunting much more easily than they will accept uh, non-resident hunters coming from another country to go to Africa to hunt animals over there for other purposes. But the overall reality that's sort of collecting all of that tension and emotion and so on, and believe me, this, this empathy for wildlife is rising in China, it is rising in other parts of Asia, it is rising in Europe, it is rising in Russia, this is not some sort of localized phenomenon that's arising from the, you know, the, 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 the finest towers in, in New York. You know, this is a global phenomenon that we're dealing with in the IUCN and other international bodies at every level. Political, cultural, social, economic, they're all dealing with it. The reason the Newfoundland seal product is not allowed into Europe is because the public morality is against the killing of seals, pure and simple. Doesn't matter if it is economically important to our people, doesn't matter that there's 7.2 million seals and they are growing at a million animals per year, and now are the largest mammalian population in the world outside of rodents. That is immaterial. Uh, it is not acceptable to the public morality of Europeans as decided by the European Union the council and the legislature, and as a result of that, there will be no importation of seal products. So it's this complicated mixture of realities that are out there. You have billions of people the world over who absolutely rely on the pursuit, killing, and consumption of wild creatures every single day of their lives. The fishing industry is one of the biggest industries in the world, one of the most subsidized industries in the world because countries recognize it's critical that they feed their people. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, you have this reality that is turning over against certain aspects of animal pursuit and death, hunting in particular, and that reality is focusing especially on iconic species like elephants and rhinos and lions and wolves and mountain lions and, and so on, and grizzly bears. And it's also focusing very much on the motivation of the hunter. Why are they doing it? And even in my discussions with individuals who are philosophically opposed to the death of animals, which I understand why people can have that opinion. Right. It's right. not too hard to understand. They love animals. Yeah. Uh, or with people who are simply opposed to hunting. Even in those discussions... When you break it down to the human level and you say, well, what about the small boat fishermen in Indonesia? What about the individual in some uh, part of Africa that must rely on bushmeat to feed themselves, to keep themselves from starving? You know, what about those circumstances? Well, just like our own arguments, suddenly they're confronted. And they're not quite so sure anymore. Their legs begin to wobble a little bit. <laughs> so we come into our reality in North America. What does all this mean? What it means is once the big debate over this African theater, which is really the center of the storm right now, once that African debate in any way gets settled, whether that is a, a massive reduction in hunting activity or the closing down of the big five hunting or whatever, the attention will then move more to North America and crystal balling, as you identified earlier in this podcast, what you can bank your money on is that the big pressure is going to come on the carnivores. 
the grizzly bear, the black bear, the mountain lion, the wolf, these are going to be the big targets. Why? Because going back to our discussion earlier, the question focuses on motivation. And they're going to say, okay, why do you hunt a grizzly bear? Why do you go to Alaska to shoot one of those giant Kodiaks? Why? Yeah. Are you going there because you need to have that food or you're going to, you know, is that, is, that, is that part of what your motivation is? Why are you going to shoot that wolf? Why are you going to shoot that mountain lion? And, of course, we have this complicated relationship with predators anyway, which is love them, hate them, we're fascinated by them. So that reality, Randy, is coming to us. Yeah. It's coming to a store near you. <laughs> and that uh, you, you couldn't have ga- provided a better uh, talk about that, um, the, or, or a better talking point for me of what I'm going to say. And this is grizzly bears. So right now, we in the greater Yellowstone region, right out my back door, uh, we're in a discussion about have the, the greater Yellowstone distinct population segment, has it recovered to the point that it should be taken off the endangered species list, or as we call it, delisting. And that really delisting means no longer federal control. We're going to turn control over to the states of Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. And that's the big debate going on right now. And I sent a letter to the governor's office in Wyoming and in Montana uh, expressing some concerns, Cecil-type concerns. Um, And I wrote it because I felt incumbent upon me, one, with my platforms that I have, and two, I was one of five Montanans appointed in 1999 by Governor Roscoe to go and represent Montana five from Idaho were appointed, five from Wyoming, to work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as they crafted this conservation strategy. Some call it management plan. And in that process, we spent three years, we would meet for a couple days every quarter in in one of the three states, and, and 15 people trying to come to a unanimous idea of how you're going to manage uh, an, a, an animal that requires as large of a landscape as a grizzly bear requires, or at least a population of grizzly bears. You really cover a lot of ground in that. So we'll roll the clock forward, and now we're talking about delisting. And in the entire debate of, of delisting, it's no longer about the species and is it recovered. It's become a hunting of grizzly versus they shouldn't be hunted. And, and we're at fault on both sides. A lot of hunters want to make delisting of grizzlies just about hunting grizzly bears. And this is not, the, this is not what it's about. Um, and when you think about we as hunters, where we always say we're conservationists first. That's where I get worried when hunters want to just focus on the idea of, oh, I want to hunt them, I want to hunt them. No. Has the landscape been put into a condition or kept or improved to a condition that it can support all that is required for a large species, complex species like grizzly bears. That's what I hope our debate on the hunting side would be. On the other side, we could see it coming. That's it. And in fact, their lead person that used to be a, a grizzly bear biologist, scientist, who's now a grizzly bear advocate, uh, the other day was quoted on Montana Public Radio and in a print article saying, I'm against delisting ever until we reform a state-based system of, of wildlife management. I, I, there's all the problems with that, blah, blah, blah. 
So it's become the reality of that situation has become extremely complex. And I am worried that right now we are on an extremely parched landscape, going back to your example of the lightning bolt hitting the, the fire or starting the fire by hitting a dry uh, landscape. When it comes to grizzly bears right now, I, I'm, I'm thinking, all right, we're going to have a tag drawing system if the states you do get control. Say a 19-year-old guy draws a grizzly bear tag. And if we aren't careful in how we plan these hunts, and my emails to Montana and Wyoming were some ideas I thought that would, would mitigate this possibility. But let's assume that some 19-year-old shoots a grizzly bear that's one of those grizzly bears that's been named, has a collar, has a tag, been written about, blogged about, photographed. He moves back and forth from Yellowstone to wherever. To me, all those things you just talked about coming to a store near you, it is coming to a store near us. Is a 19-year-old ready for what I mean, in effect, when we hand that 19-year-old that tag, we are handing them a big part of the future of what hunting's going to look like for us. And uh, I'm not saying we don't necessarily hunt them, but I'm saying we have a lesson to look at in the rearview mirror. Let's not make the same mistake out the front windshield. And so I gave the states what I thought were a bunch of, of possible mechanisms to reduce that that likelihood of you know, don't hunt, don't allow hunting right up to the Yellowstone border. They, they have what's called the primary conservation area, an area that is outside the, the, the border, reducing that likelihood. Have training classes, have, you know, have severe penalties if you shoot a female and even more severe if you shoot a sow that has cubs. Um, a whole list of things. Make them backcountry type hunts so they're less likely to be four photographers there filming someone who shoots a grizzly bear that just walked away from a you know a garbage can or something it i just worry that in our our haste to defend our position as hey we are we we need a voice here this is we're hunters we we kind of planted the garden that the grizzly bear is living on here in terms of wool or, or elk and all the other things they need that in our our boldness of wanting to claim that turf we could be setting ourselves up for the north american version of cecil and i don't know i maybe i'm maybe i'm all wet but i don't know either of you have have thoughts on that but i could see it coming to a store in my backyard right now <laughs> it's an it's inevitably coming um and you're you're entirely right to be concerned about it, and entirely right to be trying to forecast forward what's going to happen. As much as we see, let me just say this as well: as much as we see the patterns that we can try and predict, there are strange anomalies within the trends that we've talked about this morning. And I'll give you an example. In British Columbia. Each year, the grizzly bear hunt is a highly controversial activity. Uh, every single year, the issue, you know, attracts media attention, and um, you know, celebrities come out on one side or the other of the debate and talk about it and condemn it and provide money in support of the issue. What is really incredible when you look at that, in that one jurisdiction of British Columbia, 
is that in that same jurisdiction, at exactly the same time, every year, there is a very significant harvest of black bears. And if you can recall the time when anyone raised the issue of the hunting of black bears in British Columbia, I cannot. So this <laughs> is a, there's quirky things that go on in these discussions. I mean, how does one explain that? Yeah. You know, why is it that uh, every year it's a sensation about the brown bear? That's what he is. He's the brown bear. We call him the grizzly. Um, uh, but no real, not the same level in any sense, consternation over the black bear. So while we can see the broad pattern, and while I think there is definitely going to be a Cecil-like event over carnivore hunting in the United States and Canada, uh, that may come from, as you've pointed out, the animal is known, or it may be something where an animal, you know, as I suggest, may have been wounded and comes into a community. It may not wreak havoc, but it dies. It dies yeah. on a city street or a town, tr someone's driveway or something of this nature. Um, I think it is likely that we are going to have the same kind of outpouring of sentiment, and I, and I do think that that is going to happen. The question that I come to when thinking about all of that is, is it inevitable that the trends we see in society, increased urbanization, rising empathy for wildlife, etc., is it inevitable that those attitudes and concerns will build to a level continuously where they really severely impact hunting by stopping it in some way, in some specific regards? Or two, are there things that we are able to do to demonstrate to people that hunting remains relevant even in terms of uh, the killing and the harvesting of these big carnivores. The, the circumstances right now are already giving us clear indication. The black bear hunt that was recently announced in the state of Florida, started yeah. last year, yep. um, is it, if you were in that jurisdiction today, you would say you were almost dealing with a Cecil event. It has not been exported across the country as the Cecil event was exported around the world, but the intensity in that jurisdiction is, is extreme over this issue, pro and con, this issue of bear hunting in Florida. So, you know, we are already seeing this, and we must remember if we look in the rearview mirror, the outcry over carnivore hunting in some states, such as California, for example, yep. have already led to uh, decisions to close certain aspects and certain kinds of hunting, certain species uh, hunting in, in jurisdictions. So we have this, this kind of pockmarked uh, series of events going on where there is a grizzly bear hunt in British Columbia that's highly controversial. The issue of what to do with the, with the grizzly in the greater Yellowstone is a big debate, a big ferment that's going on at the present time that, depending on what happens, will almost inevitably have further controversy as it goes down the road. And then in the state of Florida, the black bear has become the focus of extraordinary debate, yet the black bear being hunted in 
British Columbia is hardly mentioned. <laughs> that's, that, that's a strange. When you when you stand back and look at it quite that way, it's like that makes no sense at all. But it makes sense to some people. Well, it, it it strikes me listening to this. Um, it raises the question of how much is this is tactical. Um, I think Shane's right. Once things quiet down in Europe, those guns are going to turn to the carnivores here. And as we see, they're already picking certain spots. But um, there has to be some explanation why people are in a fuss about the grizzly hunting in British Columbia, but you don't hear a word about the black bear. the situation in Florida with a black bear hunt there um, appears to be tactical, selective, right. if you will. Yep. Uh, Maine just uh, defeated a uh, opposition to the bear hunting there. Um, you know, there was, there was groups that went all in to try and get that ballot initiative passed. And, and Shane and I have talked about this before, and he, he can expand on it. It doesn't seem to be... And when I mentioned tactical, I meant there's an intent why these things are chosen. There's an intent why people will use the word trophy to apply to anything they want to to try and do away with. Uh, you don't see people, um, you know, running campaigns against deer hunting or elk hunting or pheasant hunting or something like that. It, it's almost like the tactic is, well, let's get the low ground stuff. Let's get this. Let's get at the stuff that is emotionally charged that we can get signatures out in front of a safe way to, to support. Yeah. Um, we can extract money from the public to fight these things. Um, I know on what little I've seen on social media relative to the greater Yellowstone grizzly is state management of grizzlies is being portrayed as a massive slaughter by hunters. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're, we're just going to mow down all these iconic bears uh, and 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 send them back to near extinction as if this is what delisting means. Yeah. Um, so I don't. I I think we have to also pay some attention to the tactics of the groups that are behind this, um, because it is intentional. It's, it's pretty obvious. Yeah. Or else, why wouldn't they? Uh, and when, when I look at the trophy hunting uh, situation, if they're uh, you know, saying in opposition to trophy hunting of mature males, is, is that a validation that hunting juveniles and females is okay? I mean, right? no, they're not saying that. <laughs> you know, they're, they're saying the hunting of the species in general, but the trophy is a, is a, it, it's it, a barb. It, 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 it's right. It's it, one it, of their bullets to it, try. It's one of their bullets. And, uh, so I think it's important not to overlook when we talk about realities, lifting our head up from our from our desk and, and seeing what's coming at us. Uh, there's always a why that's important to pay attention to. Yeah, for sure. And and I I said this. I, I talked about this on another podcast. I was approached by somebody who was really quick to hang the trophy hunting tag on on the discussion. It was it was a person I didn't really know. Um, and so we we got into this discussion and and i could tell their context of how hunting happens and and you know just 
it, it was it was very apparent that that their formed opinions about hunting weren't based on experience i i, I gathered that real quickly um and so I, uh, to your point in trophy hunting keith is uh, i said well what what is trophy hunting well it's just you know everyone is focused on the antlers or the horns or whatever and so i we, time allowed us to have a, a pretty good discussion about it and i thought the person was actually pretty open about it given where their biases seem to have come from to start with and and the quick point i tried to make is you know i i get i get where you're, what you're saying and I, I think i know what you mean but from my perspective and this is what, what you hit on keith is for us to hunt and have sustainable populations, we usually hunt the male of the species because that's the surplus that is not necessary for the the you know the continuation and the least, growth. Least biological impact. Exactly that, and you talk about you know you look at even in agriculture, the person what does the farmer do or the rancher? The rancher does not sell the heifer crop, calf crop, sells the steer crop every fall usually keeps the heifers as carryovers for the replacement stock and growth of the herd. And uh, the person was like, yeah, well, yeah, I get that. That makes sense. Well, you take it to the next step of it. So the mere fact that I didn't leave the antlers or the horns out in the woods and I brought them home, that is the act that makes me a trophy hunter? Uh, would you prefer I left the antlers out there? and maybe left the hide maybe left some of the organs and my point was and it it struck me real quickly of how this person now as you said earlier shane their legs were wobbling a little bit on what they thought was this firm position of what trophy hunting was and and then we had to leave we didn't we didn't get to carry on the discussion much further and i often wonder if we in the hunting world get almost maybe a little bit too defensive or, or try to get rid of that tag that is he now being effectively used to anything they don't like of what we do they call it trophy hunting um i'm just now getting the, the feeling comfortable saying you know what I, I get what you're saying but you know here's what you're saying let let's discuss is this trophy hunting w would you prefer that i shoot the females like like you pose the question keith should i shoot the fawns should i shoot the does or the cows and obviously they're going to say, well, no. Um, and I'm not trying to justify to them that they got to believe that they, that everything I do is okay. I'm just trying to give them a little more context to what gets painted to them as trophy hunting, what it really is in reality. And, and maybe I'm trying to push a rope up a really steep hill, but I, I think we in the hunting world got to start thinking about how we nuance that message also it's because it, it's going to be used against us more going forward than it is even today well <clears throat> my own personal view and i've written a lot about trophy hunting and i've talked spoken a lot about it and in defense of it in its classic form of people for example who would travel to africa and they would hunt these species and trying to explain the practical benefits of it and and that was the substance of our iucn report a little while ago and I may just mention here on the podcast that we are now going to do a global review of hunting, period, not just trophy hunting, which will come out. But the term has been so misused and so misinterpreted and so misguided 
you may well have the opportunity, Randy, to speak to an individual and try to convince them, and I might have that, and Keith might have that. But to try to explain the nuances around trophy hunting, that a trophy can be anything. A trophy can be a small whitened skull that somebody has from a small deer they took. It could be a trophy can even be a, a photograph. You know, there's, a trophy could be a shed antler. I mean, there's, you know, to try to go back into the broad public perception globally now um, and try to reshape the public conscience around that term, well, my personal view is that's a pretty big job, and we better be prepared to pour every bit of effort, time, and money we've got into doing it yep. if we hope to have any success. I'm not in favor of adjectives for hunting. I never have been. And I don't think uh, to call hunting meat hunting, trophy hunting, recreational hunting, or sport hunting ever does us more good than harm. I agree 100%. And so, you know, I think we get hung up on these terms. I've had people say to me, I'll live and die by the term of trophy hunting. Well, that's probably a correct statement, <laughs> uh, you know, because uh, that's how strong uh, the feeling is out there. And what is happening, which is the real big concern, is people are beginning to not make any distinction. Uh, instead of... Instead of uh, uh, understanding that they, there could be all kinds of hunting, as we try to say it, there's sport hunting, recreational hunting, meat hunting, trophy hunting. They're now saying, I don't like trophy hunting, and that's what all hunting is. So it's not as though the debate is only influencing a particular sector of hunting. Yep. And that's what we have to realize. It is affecting the entire sector of hunting because a, a growing number of people in society are not drawing a distinction. Now, a year or two ago, when I recommended that we eliminate the term, we just do away with the term, we just not have the term. Of trophy. Of hunting. trophy. Yeah. When we did the trophy hunting guidelines in the IUCN three years ago, we wrote a, a trophy hunting guidelines for the world and said this, if you're going to have trophy hunting, these are the circumstances you should abide by and try to encourage. I tried to encourage the IUCN to drop the term then, and they would not do it. And their argument was, it's in such common usage, you know, how, what other term are we going to use? It's as though we have to have a term. Well, I just got back from meetings at Cambridge where we're talking about this entire review of hunting worldwide. And I could tell you that there's a much greater reception three years later to the idea of not using the term. <laughs> now, when I wrote the article in Sports Afield about dropping the term, I had an article in defense of trophy hunting explaining how it had been misconceived. I wrote another article that said, look, regardless of the truth, those misconceptions are there. Now, let's ask ourselves, what do we gain as a hunting community by keeping the term? Let's flip this around and ask ourselves, how important is it for us to keep that term? In other words, if we took that term out of there, would that mean that no, no man or woman would go to Namibia to hunt leopard? Because all of a sudden they couldn't go over there and say, well, I was a trophy hunter when I was over there hunting there. Would it destroy business? Would, it, uh, uh, would, it, uh, would the loss of it uh, lead to a loss of support in the public mind for hunting? It seems quite the contrary based on all the evidence. So I keep asking, what's the benefit of these terms? Yeah. Why don't we just call it hunting? Right. Because every person has many motivations. Of course, if you take an animal with a beautiful rack, you're inclined to take the rack home, even if your primary motivation was its loins. Yep. 
you know? And, and you know, at one point I said, if, if the trophy hunting community really wants to come up with a, a sort of a tagline, they should call themselves the total hunters because they take it all. <laughs> right, yeah. Right? They don't leave anything. <laughs> they take the skin, they take the meat, and they take the antlers or the, 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 the horns or, or, or whatever. But the bottom line is, it comes back to a point earlier in this game. We can't, we can't spend all of our time defending a particular item in our storefront because we have always had it there and because we understand it is a good thing. But if it is harming the very thing that we are in love with, doesn't there come a point in time where we should say, whether it's a term or an activity, shouldn't there come a time where we would say, to save what we care for, we're going to give over something that's really not all that significant. And what does this do? It puts hunting up there. And for the opponents of hunting now, they have to come and they have to say, well, we're against it all. Right. They, have, they, they don't have a niche space anymore. Yeah. They're against it all. And that means they're against the 35 to 40 million people who hunt and fish in Canada and the United States. And yeah. let me tell you, that's a pretty relevant group of people. Yeah. All right. and, and people who hunt in other places of the yes, world totally. for, for their subsistence. Which, and at every level. Yeah. Absolute <laughs> subsistence, partial subsistence. So yeah. Well, <clears throat> we could go on and on and on and on. And uh, I'm just feeling fortunate that you guys were both here at the same time and had to put up with my presence here. Uh, but before we, uh, we wrap up, um, Shane, you got your own podcast, right? Yeah, I do. It's, uh, how, where can people get it? On your website? On they can your, get to my website and they'll find it from there. It's just started. Yeah. And it's a bit of an experiment. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll see how that goes, you know. Yeah. It's interesting. And you're so some wa- days we'll flip roles. Yeah. Hey. I, I'd, I'd love to do that. I just feel like <laughs> y- you're probably going to look for people with bigger brains than mine to, <laughs> to be on your podcast. But, uh, and, I think uh, your brain will be just fine. Right? The <laughs> last year when you were on, we, we were talking about this new initiative that you were trying to, to, to move forward to the ne- next level. Um and because some people might not have caught that podcast, tell us a little bit about your Wild Harvest Initiative. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Um, the Wild Harvest Initiative, uh, most simply, is taking the existing information on the number of species and the number of individuals of each, each species that are hunted and harvested by recreational hunters and anglers, so we're including fish, in Canada and the United States. The assembly of that data has never uh, previously happened, which is kind of surprising. The plan is to then determine the amount of meat that is available from any harvestable species. A moose gets so much, a white-tailed deer provides so much, etc. And then to develop a a fair market value, money-wise, per kilogram, per pound, whatever we're dealing with, um, to try and come up with a total economic value purely on the meat basis of the harvest. And again, remember, that's a harvest being conducted by up to 40 million people a year. So the harvest is gargantuan. Second thing we want to do with this is to 
develop what we call or analyze, establish what the sharing index. Randy goes out and he takes his elk. How many people does Randy actually share that food with? Is it five? Is it ten? Is it three? Is it four? Whatever it is. So that we can get an idea of the, uh, the chain of transfer, how the benefits of that harvest by a hunter actually radiates out from him or herself personally. Then we are going to uh, ask the question and try and get to the answer of, okay, let's say that the 35 to uh, 40 million people who are engaged in this harvest all of a sudden stop. How do we come up with the millions upon millions of tons of quality food that is being harvested? How do we replace this? What are going to be the costs? We obviously are going to have to replace it from somewhere. People are not harvesting all this and throwing it away. They're harvesting it and they're consuming it. And so the question is to society, how are we going to replace this uh, massive harvest? And then we are going to take the uh, economic data that we've generated, how much this is worth and how much might it cost to replace, and we're going to tie that in with the existing economic data on jobs created, you know, con contributions to GDP, contributions to federal, state, and county taxes, and so on, that all derive from hunting and angling activity. And for the first time, I believe, we will present, we will present for those that cannot speak for themselves, wildlife, we will present a value for them to modern society that we have never ever had before. And a couple of things that will emerge from this, we are looking for things to explain the relevance of hunting in a modern world. To point out that it's not an anachronism, it's not just a cruel, frivolous, you know, undertaking that people do without sensibility or concern for the natural world. And we're actually going to be able to demonstrate that in 2016, not 1916 or 1816, we are still able in Canada and the United States to have a portion of our food security come directly from the natural world that any citizen under our law, provided they are legally enshrined and capable and have passed tests, can go and actually benefit from. And the value of that, I think, to wildlife is that I hope eventually it will lead policymakers to consider the true value of wildlife in making decisions about land use, and they're currently not including that meat value, as we all know, right. as part of that decision making never process. Enters never decision. enters the equation. Um, and the other thing is to provide hunting with a way of explaining itself that does not force the hunting community to turn itself into a human pretzel. <laughs> Uh, because <laughs> the community out there, the broad community of the public, the citizenry of our countries are concerned about the quality of their food. They are concerned about the quality of the environment. They are concerned about eating food that they have a very clear sense of how it was treated, where it came from. Look, we need industrial agriculture to feed humanity today. We, there, yeah. There's no question about that. And that industry has been doing a lot of things to, you know, better control for variables that the public sees, uh, views with concern. There's been a lot of progress in this regard. But where we are able to harvest an amount of food that I believe is going to be actually uh, in competition in a sense, if you look at total volume, with certain aspects of agriculture, where we are able to do that from a natural world that we have worked to protect 
I think that's going to be uh, an important message that we are able to pass on to people. And I also believe it is going to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that if 120 years after we started this kind of conservation, you know, hunting-based effort in Canada and the United States, we are still able to put 35 to 40 million people afield every year, legally, and harvest this vast amount of food, we bloody well must have done something right <laughs> with the wildlife on this continent. Oh, well, hopefully they could conclude that. And I hope then that the other re uh, result of this will be that we will begin to demonstrate the hunter as a human being who conscientiously provides food in an environmentally friendly manner and also is becomes an important advocate for providing that food, in other words, for securing the systems and laws and policies to make sure that food is always available. We will present the hunter as a person compelled to share at a time when American culture and American society is very much concerned about divisiveness and negativity. Um, and I think we will also be able to demonstrate to people that, look, if you really want, if you really want to have access to this food, there are 35 to 40 million people who will gladly help you. We will show you how to do this. And even if you don't feel comfortable harvesting the animal yourself, I'm sure if you make friends with any hunter or angler, you'll have access to some of it. Right. I think it's a, I think it's just a positive, yeah, a positive effort. Well, I'll, uh, I can't wait till we get to podcast next year and I can get get the further update on it. And uh, so, Keith, um, over at you know w when you and Tony were on the the podcast, I got a lot of emails from people who said. I didn't know that I could become a member of the Boone and Crockett Club. Do, do you get that often? I mean, I, I want people to understand, because I've been a lifetime associate since 2007 now, so almost 10 years. And when my Fair Chase magazine comes in, it gets read. It's, it's the first thing that gets read because you guys cover so many important topics in such a way that it, 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 risks, it just helps my perspective of where we're at in the issues we face. And, and I'm always asking a lot of my hunting friends, did you read that in Fair Chase? No, I don't get the magazine. I didn't know I could become a member. Uh, so this is your chance to shamelessly or however plug all the work BNC does. You know, it, it, it's a head scratcher for, for us that work for the organization, belong to the organization. And the easiest thing I can say to that is, is when you club is in your name, and you're 130 years old and you're most known for publishing a records book and a scoring system uh, by default people have a sense that there is anything to join um, but as you pointed out that's the exact opposite we do have uh, all levels of membership um, you know the club has never been uh, a model where we accumulate this mass uh, group of people um, our work is, is very different um, but certainly we we have a, a, a level for everybody that wants to join whether you're a fan of something that Teddy Roosevelt created whether you're a, a firm believer in fair chase uh, whether you're somebody that wants to learn more about uh, these issues that we're talking about here relative to conservation um, 
whether you're interested in scoring and record books. Uh, there, there's there's a lot of access points to why people join Boone and Crockett, but uh, I'm glad to hear that you're one that is getting the magazine, and it's, it is very different relative to an outdoor periodical in terms of uh, what we're covering and, and, and who our contributors are. Shane's going to be writing for us. We have a lot of uh, very bright minds in the conservation world uh, that contribute to this, and it's easy. You can go online. It's $35 a year, uh, and and we love to have more sportsmen involved. Um, Shane and I have talked about this a ton, and that is our wildlife needs active and engaged sportsmen, and, and that's what we're trying to create as a home for those people. Yeah, well, you guys do a great job of it. I, I look at how much, if people saw when I'm preparing for podcasts or when I'm out on the road doing my TV show, the number of my Fair Chase magazines that travel with me with little sticky notes, because it might be John Oregon, it might be Steve Williams, it, it might be any of the people who write some of this stuff, um, your, your, your back column. I, I, that that's like, ooh, this, who who I, I'm I'm drawing that's a blank. Dan Pedrotti. Yeah, Dan, and uh, you guys give him a lot of editorial uh, liberty. He he takes on issues. I, I read it. I'm like, someone needs to say that. Thank goodness somebody is saying that. And so uh, I, it's a it's a, and maybe I need to pay you a royalty fee. But <laughs> so much of what is in that magazine causes my mind to, to start thinking about these are dots I need to connect. And the activities of the club, you guys, and I get it, you're, you're, you're low profile, you're kind of under the radar, you, you just put your head down, do your work. I wish the hunting community had a better understanding of the work that you guys, not just since in the 130 years you've been around, but the policy work that you guys are working on right now, because it's it's very valuable in a time that we are in today, and and I'm thankful you guys are there doing it. Well, I, I appreciate that. You know, at, throughout this conference, there was one um, resounding theme, and is that is that our hunting community needs to know our history. Uh, you can't go forward. You can't uh, articulate. Uh, appropriate defenses or justifications or relevances, whichever word you want to use for hunting, without a good working knowledge of how we got here. And that's that's one thing I would like to uh, tip the hat to Boone and Crockett on, is that history of conservation in North America is the history of the club, uh, of these members, uh, and what they did, and the policies, and the legislations, and the expert agencies, and the education systems uh, all of that is linked quietly to the club. Um, that's accessible if if people want to learn that history um, by becoming a member. You do have access to all of that, yeah. and uh, you know, to me, that's more beneficial than a record book. Although that's an important part of what we do, but believe it or not, that's only ten percent of our operating budget. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, I, I hear it often. Oh, well, they just do that record book. That's what keeps the doors open. I'm like, you, you guys have no idea, but that, that whole history stuff, I've, I've just turned into this voracious reader about conservation history in the last 10 years. And 
I'm always looking for new pieces to read because every person is who writes in a good manner and researches in a good manner is going to find some other piece that someone else hadn't pulled forward and and put the spotlight on and so i'm i'm thankful for that so um anyone got a crystal ball that they they want to look in and, and give the audience any uh shane shaking his head like no nah, i'm not going there and keith you got it you got your crystal ball with you today? Well, all this talking about wild protein and wild harvest and food i'm hungry we we did jump onto this podcast just before the lunch hour so i'm i'm holding these guys from their meal so i'm gonna have to pay up i'm afraid jane you got anything that that you want to leave leave us with it's a it's been a pleasure again i enjoy the podcast i mean getting the discussions going are critically important we definitely need sportsmen to come forward in a way that they never have before we need them to think about uh, expressing their concerns in ways that resonate uh, with a modern public, uh, ways that look forward, not backward, uh, ways that are inclusive, not exclusionary. Um, we need to form alliances very quickly with a lot of different groups. The Wild Harvest Initiative, for example, we can form alliances with the mushroom harvesters and the berry harvesters and the fruit harvesters. The pollinators. Yeah, uh, there's all kinds of ways in which we can do very positive things. And, and the final thing I would say is we shouldn't be overwhelmed by the, the many challenges that we discussed today. Because believe me, when the conservation system and the recreational hunting and angling based part of that system was put in place, 120 years ago, the challenges were far greater and the problems were far worse than they are today. And yet we've had the success we've had for 120 years. So I think it's important for people to realize that the discussions around problems are simply because we are trying as best we can to find solutions not because we feel we're overwhelmed by the problems themselves. <laughs> Good point. I, I think that that is always a danger of when you're discussing problems, it almost gives the sky is falling feeling. And, and I never want to leave people with that, but I'm going to leave people. This is not going to be marital advice. Uh, they've all been waiting for the last hour to see what marital advice Randy's going to throw out there. So I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to give political advice, which is probably even more dangerous than giving marital advice. But it is an election year. And and today uh, here at POMA at the conference, there was a panel talking about public lands and other things. And there were some really good comments provided. Uh, I was grateful to be on the panel. And Shane, you were on the panel. And Keith, you were in the audience. And when one thing I've, I've found uh, that's, that is a reminder that's helpful to a lot of people is that even in an election year like this, no matter who you vote for, whether it's uh, the lesser of two evils or someone you're super passionate about, understand that when you vote, and please vote, that is one of your duties as a citizen. The other is to be engaged the other 364 and 365 days each year until the next election and to be engaged in policy. And er, everything that we do in this world of policy as it relates to our wildlife comes because we've stepped forward and we've been leaders, not because we decided, well, someone else will take care of it. So those of you listening, it's great if you have a passion for politics. That's all fine. 
But even once you vote, whether your person that you're supporting wins or loses, the other 364 days out of the year, you need to be thinking how you can help this cause of conservation, this cause of wildlife. And I, I, I use the analogy that an election year is almost like the guy who wants to go on a backpack elk hunt. He's like me. He's a CPA. He drives a desk for a living and he goes and he hikes the mountain one time that year and says, oh, I'm set now. I'm ready to go elk hunting. Well, that's not going to get you where you need to be. And the same as it applies to this advocacy for wildlife. So those of you listening, make sure you vote, but make sure you stay engaged and involved. And Shane, Keith, thanks so much. And to all of you, those of you who do listen to this podcast, uh, I can't thank you all enough. And uh, thanks for listening, folks.